Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Laura Kirk-Smith, Executive Director of the IRC in the UK, the IRC being the International Rescue Committee. Many of you will know the work of the IRC globally, but today we are focusing on the work of the IRC here in the UK, serving refugee communities and helping them integrate into life in the UK, whether that's employability, whether that's education, whether that's peer-to-peer mentoring. Interesting work. Stay tuned. You're going to enjoy the show. And Laura, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Good to see you again. Uh, I know we don't have any time difference today, which is a nice change. You're in the UK, I'm in the UK, and you're the executive director of the IRC in the UK, the International Rescue Committee. And for our listeners who may not be aware, I had David Miliband on the show a little while back, who is the global head of the International Rescue Committee. So you may want to take a listen at that episode to get a really well-rounded overview of the IRC at a global level. Uh, today, we're going to have a little bit more of a UK focus. And uh, and Laura, it's, it's not only great to see you, but I'm really keen to learn a little bit more about the IRC in the UK. What, what's it all about? What's it doing? Great. Um, excited to be talking to you. I'll start by just a quick refresher on the um, the global, uh, on IRC globally and the, the global context, because um, we're a, a global humanitarian organization that works in 40 different countries uh, worldwide. So we have 8,000 staff out in Afghanistan. We have thousands of staff in places like um, DRC, Ethiopia, Sudan, um, where we've been working for, for decades in many cases. We start with the needs of our clients, and our clients are people who have been uh, displaced by conflict and crisis, including the climate crisis. We're here to to serve them, to meet their needs, to find uh, solutions that enable them to to survive in the short term, um, but then to go on and uh, and rebuild their lives. We work across five different outcome areas. So while our programmes look a bit different in different places, depending on the um, particular needs, we are always driving towards five different outcome areas, one of which is um, health, uh, one of which is education, one of which um, is economic uh, well-being and empowerment, uh, one of which is safety, uh, which includes our child protection and our women's protection work. And the final one is power, which is about um, helping our clients uh, be part of the decision making that, that affects their lives. So it's um, a, broad, a broad scope of work. Uh, what really drives us is uh, the evidence, the evidence gathering of what types of interventions work uh, and what types of interventions don't work. Uh, and we're constantly in piloting and uh, testing mode um, about the right type of programming and ultimately the solutions um, seeing our clients go on to um, to thrive and, uh, and to not need to, to work with the IRC uh, anymore. So globally we've been um, in existence for, for 90 years. It's our 90th birthday uh, this this year. We were Happy birthday, the- happy birthday. Well, thank you. Um, we were set up at the call of Albert Einstein back in 1933, um, the International Relief Association, as it then was, um, which went on to merge with something called the Emergency Rescue Committee. And if you're a Netflix fan, which I confess I am, um, 
there's a great program at the moment on their transatlantic, um, which uh, looks at the emergency rescue committee. It was um, in operation in France in the 1940s, helping to get um, uh, Jewish refugees at the time out of out of Europe and uh, and over to the the states primarily. Um, but that in that organization came together with the one that um, Einstein founded, and and that was um, that was the birth of the IRC. So. A fascinating history, a, a long, a long-standing history, and uh, here in the UK, we're kind of I, we're relatively young within the um, the IRC family, um, a mere 25, 26 years. So we were uh, we've been here since uh, since nineteen ninety seven, um, and we're here partly to um, to fundraise for our international programs and to look after our UK based donors. Um, we're here to raise awareness of the needs of our clients and the solutions that we think need to be um, in place to improve their lives. Um, but we're also here to run programmes in the UK. Um, we've been doing that for just a couple of years now, but we uh, we work with refugees here in the UK um, to, to welcome them, to orient them um, to life in the UK and um, to support with areas like um, education for refugee children here and uh, job readiness um, training and integration into the um, uh, into the workplace um, for uh, for refugee adult refugees that we work with here, um, and the programs, yeah, two years old, but we're starting to see some um, some fantastic results through those programs too. Excellent, excellent. I mean, I always know of the IRC on a, on a at the global stage, and you hear, you know, you, you can read about the work that's happening in the front lines in, in a lot of these hot spots, these crisis spots. Uh, wasn't that familiar with the work that you're actually doing in the UK. It's good to see that you have some programs running here. I know if we look at Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine, we, we in the UK have been receiving a lot of uh, refugees coming in from a lot of uh, uh, conflict areas. Give us a little bit more of a flavor into the programs, what they look like, who you're serving. Sure. So the vast majority of our clients here are um, Syrian, Afghan or Ukrainian. Um, and that's not because those are the nationalities that we select will serve um, whichever refugee populations need our um, assistance. Um, but it's because of the nature of refugee resettlement here in the UK. So we um, currently are not working with asylum seekers who arrive uh, on small, small boats, um, though we may um, we would like to expand our work into that. Um, into that that population, um, we are working with uh, resettled refugees. So it's people who have um, arrived via one of the uh, resettlement routes. Um, and the reality is uh, that uh, it's only really if you're from Ukraine or Afghanistan um, or uh, Hong Kong. There's been uh, the special visas set up for people for from Hong Kong, but it's really only those nationalities and, and Syrians historically who have um, been able to access the resettlement routes to the UK, uh, which is one of the points that we have been um, making a lot in relation to the um, illegal migration bill uh, and the hope from the government that you can put deterrence measures in place and that will stop people coming. Our point is that you can't do that in the absence of uh, safe routes for um, uh, a wider set of uh, nationalities um, than just those that have access to the, the resettlement schemes currently. Um, anyone from anywhere that needs protection should be um, able to apply for, uh, for asylum in the UK. Um, but we can get we can get onto that. But just in terms of our um, programs, to your to your question, uh, so the 
the cultural orientation program is, is often our starting point with a uh, with a client um, and that is about um, helping them understand life in the UK a lot of basic what seem to us like basic things like um, how the education the school system works um, how you um, book appointments with uh, a GP or get to a hospital if, uh, if there's an emergency um, how to call 999 what to expect um, and then uh, and then often the next stage with clients once they've been through that cultural orientation program is to participate in our job readiness programs and they are fascinating because so many of our clients are from um have had very successful careers um before they fled their homes so if you look at some of our afghan clients you've got former regional governors of afghanistan and doctors and lawyers and journalists and they're here and they're having to rebuild their um, their lives from scratch but including their careers from from scratch and so what we will do is um, talk about the the labor market in the UK talk about the job the types of jobs that might be open to them talk about very practical things like what an employer would expect a, a CV to look like um, and what a job what, what would be expected in a job interview uh, and we will um, work with our clients to help um, prepare them to um, to get into jobs in the UK and we're seeing some some really encouraging um, figures from that program to show uh, that they are able to find work if you can just put their uh, that groundwork um, in in place. Uh, we also have an education program here in the UK, which is a, a really interesting one, working not directly with um, with young refugees but with teachers who are. Um, who are in welcoming refugees, integrating refugees into their classrooms. Um, a lot of teachers have had to uh, take Ukrainians into their classrooms without necessarily prior experience of um, working with children who have been through trauma and are in a, an unfamiliar education system. Um, so we have a, a, a healing classrooms model um, that we use, which is um, all about how you can tailor uh, tailor your uh, schooling to uh, cater for people who have particular um, social and emotional uh, needs for the academic needs. And again, we're seeing some um, some good early successes there with that program. What prompted the IRC to start looking at these uh, domestic programs here in the UK? What prompted that 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 thinking? What triggered it? Where somebody said, okay. Let's maybe start looking at structuring some programs here in the UK. So IRC is actually quite unique in the sense that we do work in, um, we work at the sharp end of crises in um, Syria and Afghanistan and Ukraine um, and so on. Um, but we also work across the arc of crisis. So we'll work with people who are, are trapped in a conflict at home. We'll work with people who have fled across a border, but uh, in the case of Syrians might be still in Jordan or Turkey um, or Lebanon or Iraq. Um, but then we will also work with, and they always consider themselves to be the, the lucky few, but we will work with those people who do go on to um, to be resettled elsewhere. We have a very long-standing resettlement programme in the United States. So for, for a long time, we will have worked with clients um, who are resettled to the United States, and it's a different system there, and it's interesting. They essentially have 90, 90 days worth of support, and it's state-funded, and we're a partner um, partner agency and our our job in the states is to ensure the basics are in place um, they have housing they have uh, kids in school they have access to healthcare sorted um, but also that they have work uh, and with a few exceptions if there are particular medical concerns in the United States the expectation is that after 90 days um, 
the new arrivals uh, will be able to earn their own income and stand on their own two feet. Um, and it's interesting. It's very it's very different to um, uh, to the government's approach here, uh, but certainly the the evidence does show it to work effectively in the states. So we have we have those kind of models, and we have uh, for a while wanted to see how we can tailor and adapt those for the UK context. Um, and it's it's been a, a good start so far. And in terms of the uh, the engagement that you have with the government here in the UK, how close or at arm's length is it? We do work with the government, so we receive a lot of um, funding from the government for our international programs, um, which is fantastic. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of impact um, that we are able to to have through that government funding, um, and uh, and then we work very closely with local authorities, in particular, um, on the delivery of our UK um, integration programs. So often there will be parts of the kind of provision that a new um, a new arrival needs that are are there from local authorities, um, but parts, um, but, but some parts of the the support that's needed that they they can't provide, and they'll work with with partners like the IRC. Uh, so it's a close uh, it's a close collaboration, and I think that's very much part of how we like to think. We can't, as IRC, we can't serve our clients alone. Uh, we need to find the right partners, and that may be a local authority. That may be there's some fantastic private sector partnerships. Um, Verizon, for example, give us um, some of their staff as volunteers on our programs here in the UK. So uh, fantastic corporate um, corporate partners, but it will often be that mix of um, other civil society organisations, government, private sector that come together um, to uh, to do the work that we do. And since you've started this uh, not that long, relatively not that long ago, uh, in terms of working in the UK, is the pendulum moving in a specific direction? Is the need for your programs growing? You know, you, you read about all of these conflict areas, people coming to the UK, cost of living crisis, energy, you name it. Everything seems to be sort of stacked, stacked up against everyone never mind refugees or displaced persons but are you finding that the pendulum and and the need for your services is increasing yeah the needs are there and they're very real but we're also so conscious at that point that you um that you make that people in the uk are finding life tough um as well there's a, a cost of living um challenge that's affecting so many so many people um and our view is that working with refugees doesn't shouldn't come at the expense of um people in the UK feeling like they can have jobs and have places for their kids in schools and um, you know live in, live in the way that they want to. If you look at the data actually on um, refugees, there's, data, there's good data from the states about the contribution that refugees make to the economy and the society. There's less, um, less good data from the UK. But if you look at the data from the states, for example, refugees are more likely to go on and set up a business uh, than people who are born in the United States. They go on very quickly to, beca to become contributors to the economy um, and, of course, to, to society if they are given the right support at the start. And I think that's the um, the evidence that uh, we work on here in the in, in the UK as well. If we can um, give refugees and asylum seekers the right start uh, they will quickly go on to make positive contributions um, here but yes the needs the needs are um, very real and what we do hear from our clients as well is that they feel increasingly unsafe um, with the very heated polarized um, debate that we're uh, we're also aware of about 
asylum seekers, about refugees, about whether or not we should welcome them. Our clients yeah, feel the effects of that. They, they notice the public treating them differently. They hear language about them that makes them feel very uncomfortable. Uh, and that does, that does worry us as well. And on that specific point, wh- what is happening here? Not just awareness of the issue, but attitudes towards individuals who are coming to the UK because they're refugees. Um, how would you characterize the state of affairs with regards to the attitudes that we have here in the UK? What we're seeing is actually a, a polarization. And so while there is fear and there is um, hostility towards our clients, there is equally this groundswell of um, support uh, that we uh, that we see. And that's heartening. And actually, if you if you dig into some of the data on on um, public attitudes and uh, to refugees, you see that there there is sympathy, there is understanding, uh, there is a desire to um, make refugees part of the fabric of British society as they have been for for many many decades. We did a poll with um, YouGov actually in January where we were polling the public and we were polling business leaders on their um, views on refugees, and it found that two-thirds of the British public um, thought refugees should get more um, support with integration, specifically with employment and with uh, English language support. And business leaders, interestingly, when when we polled them, uh, said that, so two-thirds of them said that they um, thought that asylum seekers should have the right to work, um, so uh, within six months of arriving, which currently uh, isn't the case. And again, around two-thirds thought that um, refugees do make a positive contribution to the economy. So there are these pockets of um, of support um, amidst the more challenging um, attitudes that uh, that you hear. Mm-hmm. And moving on from the attitudes to the the policy sphere. So in terms of UK domestic uh, refugee and asylum policy, what's the state of play there? So as we're talking, the illegal migration bill is going uh, through the UK Parliament. We've been quite open about our concerns. We are not uh, convinced that this deterrence-based approach that the government is taking um, is going to work. Um, We also think very strongly that there are more compassionate alternatives that the government could be pursuing We've, I've talked a bit about the the resettlement routes and our clients um, arriving via those routes, but they're still very, very limited in number. Uh, so we do think it's essential that these um, uh, more that these expanded um, safe alternative routes are put into to place. And on the on on asylum seekers, I mean, it's essential that that right to to seek asylum is is upheld. And our view is that there is a um, there would be a cost-effective uh, way of doing it, uh, so that you fix the asylum system um, in the UK rather than uh, rather than curtail the right to seek asylum um, altogether, or seek to export your asylum processing uh, to Rwanda or or elsewhere. So uh, there are alternative solutions that we think um, we think could work more effectively and I suppose the broader concern is if something like the illegal migration bill goes through here what's to stop that happening in uh, in other countries too we see the Italians and the Swedes and others sort of looking and following and thinking 
you know, are there are there opportunities for them to curtail the right to seek asylum there? And you end up on this kind of downward trend globally where um, ultimately our clients um, are left without um, adequate options for, for protection. So it's a little bit of a precarious space. The uh... Yeah, it is. And it's also a lot of the debates about domestic refugee and asylum policy, I think, miss that global context. So... Uh, if you look at the global the global numbers, there's 100 million people displaced around the world. Now, about half of them are displaced uh, within their own countries. They don't become they don't cross borders and become refugees, but they're unable to live safely in their homes within their countries. Um, and then about 32 million out of that 100 million um, do cross the border and become a refugee. But again, the vast majority of those are in um, already quite fragile developing context often the neighboring countries to the country that they flee from and we're seeing this with Sudan people crossing into to Chad and to Ethiopia which are really vulnerable in their own their own right the number of refugees that um that do uh, want to come to the UK or attempt to come to the UK um is is um you know it's a, it's a number that needs to be taken seriously but we're talking about 70,000 asylum seekers last year and we're talking about 100 million people displaced worldwide. So I think that global perspective is is really important to keep in mind. And, you know, my hope is that Britain can take pride in being a progressive country that has um, that makes commitments to refugees globally, that wants to be part of of solving a, a global challenge like that. But it doesn't feel like that's always uh, the case. Mm. And tell me a little bit about um, about your personal journey. So, how did you um, how did you end up where you are today? So, you're running the IRC in the UK. Sounds like a a, a very fulfilling and rewarding role, uh, even though you're dealing with a subject matter that can be disheartening at times, right? Can be disheartening, but um, what is always heartening is meeting our clients and seeing how uh, resilient and brave and ambitious and courageous um they are that's uh, for me that's always the best part of the job actually is um is getting to meet our our clients but i uh well my first encounter with them um, with refugees or with um internally displaced people depending on uh who was that i worked in uh, i spent a, a year in in russia back in 2000 and one and I was working um, partly teaching English and partly uh, working at a centre for Chechen refugees. Um, though the Russian government, of course, would have considered them internally displaced rather than um, rather than refugees. But that was my first uh, encounter working with refugees, and I I was fortunate enough to grow up somewhere where home was safe, and I'd always taken that for granted, and to um, to realise that for some people, um, uh, home isn't somewhere you can live uh, safely was um was a revelation for me um and so that that's what started my interest um in working with refugees but i went i i have worked in in government i worked for what's now the fcdo what was the the, the fco the foreign and commonwealth office at the time um and i worked in the private sector for a bit but i um have found my way back um into working with um with refugees and it feels uh, such a privilege to be able to 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 serve and to work with uh, our refugees clients and to be doing that alongside I mean my job always feels like the easy one compared to our country director in Afghanistan or in Sudan and you know the challenges that they that they face and that they rise up to on a on a daily basis are, are incredible so it's yeah it feels 
uh, I feel very privileged to be part of that. So you, you had the, the, the refugee angle was something that you, you've been exposed to for, for a long time and you sort of knew that the trajectory was heading in this direction. That, that first, I remember that first time walking into the uh, the Chechen refugee center in, in Moscow. And yeah, that, that for me was probably the, the moment that, as I say, that, that, that peaked, peaked my interest. But I've, uh, yeah, I've worked with, with refugees also in a voluntary capacity um, from many different angles since since then. I've, I've also set up a community sponsorship group. So there's a Syrian, in my local area, there's a Syrian family we've welcomed into the, into the area. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a long, a long-standing um, interest. And with the, the numbers of refugees growing and the, the hostility to them in some um, parts of uh, of society, and that's a global trend. With that, with that growing, it does feel more important than ever to be to be doing my bit. Are there are there common denominators that you see? Whether you were, you know, it's from your experience with, when you were in Russia and and seeing refugees here, and um, and I guess just tacking on to that, also you you mentioned about power and the power dynamics and making sure that your clients are involved in the decision making and. Because it's you know one thing is to say we want to make sure that our clients and people we're serving are also imp- involved in what we do. Uh, it's another to facilitate that safe environment where they feel that they can exercise their voice, right? That they can. Yeah, and I think that that initial reaction being one of often caution at best or fear at worst from a from a host community um, or a host country. That, in my experience, in the, over the last twenty years, that has always um, been. That's always been there, um, and working with refugees to help them understand that it's a human reaction to a newcomer uh, in a in a society in a community. But to work with refugees to understand that to ultimately to empower uh, them to be able to champion themselves, advocate for themselves in their communities is so important, uh, and I think more important now than it than it has been. Uh, and I haven't, there's one part of our UK programs I didn't talk about, which is a leadership group that we work with. So they're a group of refugees who are specifically on a course to um, uh, to help them sort of understand advocacy communications um, and help them to be be better advocates for them for themselves. And they're they're natural. I mean, it's not like they need the help with those basic skills, but just doing that in the UK context is the is the new bit. Um, but some of the real high points for me of the work, we got them into Parliament. At a, uh, we were launching a report, but we had um, one of our Afghan clients, a former broadcast journalist in um, in Kabul. She um, now now in High Wycombe. She um, she launched that for us, um, and just to see the reaction from the from the MPs and from from others in the room, hearing directly from from her, um, you can't help but be so full of admiration um, and. Uh, and you can't help but but want to listen and uh, and do your bit in responding to the the concerns and the the needs that she raised. What what's the name of this leadership course? It's just it's our refugee leadership program, um, and it's been a, it's been our, our first pilot, um, but we're looking to looking to expand it. And if if any anyone listening is interested in partnering with us on that, do uh, do get in touch. And indeed, if anyone's interested in partnering with the IRC. Um, donating to us if you can supporting us in whatever way you can please do get in touch it's www.rescue.org slash uk and you'll find out find out more about us there excellent i always say the squeaky wheel gets the oil so it's good to make that ask 
it's interesting about the leadership program because I can see how individuals who benefited from your engagement, interventions, generosity could in turn, once they incorporate into society and start giving back, be some of your strongest advocates and indeed some of the strongest uh, uh, resources that you would have in order to help the next uh, cohort, as it were, but the next wave of people who might need. Yeah, exactly. Um, peer mentoring is another part of what we do to try and encourage those graduates from our programs to to work with the newer arrivals. But absolutely, they're the, they're the best advocates. And that's the that's the goal, right, is that there's not a need for for IRC anymore. These are people who are out there in society carving out their, their new lives independently and making the contributions that they're always so determined to make. Mm. The uh, if, we're, if we're looking at uh, three to five years, uh, what does success look like uh, if we're having a chat in five years' time? What, what is it that you would ideally like to be able to look back and say, yeah, you know, we're really happy we did this? I, I, my hope would be that IRC doesn't have to do as much and that other partners who we work with don't have to do as much. We try, whether it's our work in Afghanistan or Sierra Leone or elsewhere, we try to take a systems lens. So we look at where the systems around the clients that we're serving are not are, are not there um, or are broken. Um, and I'm afraid that is the case in the UK as well. There's not the cohesive system of support for um for refugees and asylum seekers that there should be. But what we would love to see is all the component parts of that system um, working without us, the, there being sufficient funding in place for local authorities to be able to um, dedicate the, the time and the resources uh, that they need to, um, to welcome new arrivals. And I would also love there to have been enough um, success in that, that approach when we're talking about the first year or two that a refugee is here I would love that to have been successful enough that what we're seeing is um, uh, refugees having been here five years, 10 years um, and in fulfilling careers and kids thriving in school. You know, that's ultimately what we're what we're aiming for. Um, and that's where most refugees get to, as I say, but they get there uh, despite the, the lack of um, support that's offered upon arrival rather than because of um, an early package of support that sets them up for success. Yeah. Before we wrap up, is there a key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? What's that What's that one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind? So I, I work in a world where, and in a role where we, there are a lot of challenges, there are a lot of needs, there's the awful situation evolving in um, Sudan as we, as we speak, and it can feel like you go from, from crisis to crisis. My takeaway is that the suffering and the challenges that we see are not inevitable. You can you can start to think, goodness, is there any way this is ever going to get better? They're not inevitable. You can look at how the IRC has exited Liberia. We had a really long-standing programme uh, there. We're not needed anymore. Um, it's a relatively stable context and all of the work that went into uh, rebuilding after the awful conflict there. Um, by agencies like IRC and many, many others um, has worked. Uh, so we can make the changes that we want to see. If you look at Yemen, there was a six month truce last year. It didn't, it didn't last, but while there was a six month truce, the number of civilian casualties um, fell dramatically. Needs started to be alleviated a bit. 
So whether those solutions are um, humanitarian and development assistance or whether it's diplomatic solutions, the type of engagement around the conflict in Yemen that led to that truce, uh, there are there are solutions and I think we have to keep um, uh, believing that and working on the basis that we can make uh, positive change happen for our clients. Excellent, excellent. Laura, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, seeing you again and learning a bit more about the work that you guys are doing here in the UK, which I think many people were not aware of. So thank you very much for that. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk to you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Laura Kirk-Smith. Executive Director of the International Rescue Committee in the UK. For information about this chat and more than 200 other conversations and case studies and interviews with remarkable folks in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoy producing today's show for you, and I will catch you this Monday.